Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. It's Tuesday, October 25th, 2011, and our guest is Mike Mariner from Road Trip Nation. Mike, welcome. Glad to be here. Of course, you're glad to have you here. The Future of Education is sponsored by web2.olabs.com, all about helping educators talk to each other and Blackboard collaborate. Coming up, uh, Mike, go ahead and turn your mic off, your microphone off. I can hear something in the background there, if you don't mind. Uh, coming up, our virtual worldwide library conference, November 2nd and 3rd. Over 3,600 people signed up from 194 countries. It is free. 162 sessions right now. It's going to be a blast. Anyway, if you like staying up late, uh, it's a good program for you. Uh, something like 40 straight hours. Library2011.com. Then on the 14th to the 18th, our second global education conference. Uh, five days, same format, same level of fun. Really should be a blast. We've just started accepting uh, session proposals as of today. They're going to start getting up on the calendar and schedule. That's just going to be a lot of fun to watch. And then I have announced the Learning 2.0 virtual conference coming up in January. More information on that soon. Okay, so uh, coming up on the future of education, we're taking a, a little bit of a break because of those two virtual conferences. Then on November 22nd, Scott Nine comes to talk about democratic education. Alan Blankstein on improving individual schools. You can see a good list there, Tasha from Google. Uh, new to the list, most recently, we're going to do a panel on personal learning profiles, both for students and for educators, kind of mapping out how you learn best. should be very interesting. Jane Hart and Alex Koros are also both going to come on to talk about social learning and kind of the fascinating shift from what we've traditionally called social learning which wasn't peer learning, but was called social learning, to what is now sort of social learning 2.0. Uh, I'm still trying to get Sugata Mitra to come on to talk about learning without teachers. Uh, if you've missed the show, we have all of them recorded. Mark Sermon from the Mozilla Foundation talking about open badges last week. Fascinating. David Lurcher on a learning commons. Uh, great uh, kind of mixing of the ed tech and library worlds. Uh, David, we're going to be doing a lot more with David. Gina Bianchini, formerly of Nang, now with Mighty Bell, talked about Mighty Bell and social learning as well. Tim Wilson and his brilliant book, Redirect. Anyway, they're all up there. Hopefully there's something of value to you. And there is a podcast feed. So this is when we're going to give you a chance to let us know where you're listening from, those of you who are with us live. So to the left of the map, you should see some icons. You're looking for the second one down, which is the star. Click on that, and then click on the map. And feel free to give a shout out in the chat. Let us know time or temperature. Oh, hooray, Australia. <laughs> We've been talking a lot about Australia today because the, we want to make sure the timing is good for those conferences. For those of you who aren't in the American continent, as always, Thanks for attending. If you're listening to the recording, we appreciate that as well. So Mike, this is really fun for me. Um, uh, candidly, this is a relatively small attendance for a show. And I think in part because 
I'm guessing a lot of the people who are thinking about EdTech and Web 2.0 are not making the connection between Road Trip Nation and kind of new ways of thinking about student engagement. But, but hopefully we'll make a difference there and we'll spread the word. Um, I, I want to ask you quite a bit about the concept and what's going on, but can you give me a sense of, of what educators really gravitate toward this and where you find that there may be some barriers? Uh, sure. So we've only been doing the education piece of it for since 2009. I mean, Road Trip Nation goes back, you know, further when we first kind of did our first road trip and the book and the PBS series and all that. But we really only started getting into curriculum development and using technology to enable students to have a project-based learning experience in their own communities, building local road trip projects um, for the past couple of years. And it started mostly through a partnership with the California Department of Education out of Sacramento here um, who worked with us to create the first Road Nation Experience curriculum and then pilot it with 2,000 primarily students from low-income communities in East Fresno County, uh, primarily Hispanic background. Um, and we gave these students a framework to build their own local road trip projects all across Fresno County. And ever since then, um, We've seen a real engagement with educational groups who reach students who maybe a bit more disengaged than the average student. Um, California Continuation School Networks for second chance students. Um, in one sampling of our of our students went through the program last year, 42% had been adjudicated at one time. So what we're seeing is many times teachers who are having a hard time maybe instilling a sense of hope for their students' futures, giving them a sense of what's possible, um, who may have been engaged in their education at one point, but now are kind of on the fence. That's where Roche can be seen as an intervention to help them explore what's possible for their futures and, and, and see why their education is even relevant in the first place. So that description really rings with uh, disruptive innovation kind of finding, uh, finding a need that gets met on the fringes and then comes to inform the center. And it's interesting to hear you talk because you're using a lot of kind of education speak language. But I want to go, I put, I'm putting your manifesto up on the screen because I don't think this is education speak language. So <laughs> where does this come from? There's sort of a core philosophy here that's almost kind of uh, counterculture or sort of the revolution. Um, everybody may not be able to read this depending on the size of their screen, but can you kind of tell us what this manifesto is and what, what you're saying here? Yeah, so, um, so I mean, you're right. Roche Mason was not created as an educational resource for classroom use. I mean, it, it really started with um, me and my two buddies when we were in school, and we just didn't really feel that education was very relevant, uh, didn't give you a good chance to explore what was possible for your future. I mean, there's a lot of great things about school, obviously, but it kind of missed some, some of those big questions that most of like our peers and we were asking, like, what are we really passionate about? And, you know, what's possible for our futures? What do we want to be with our futures? And rather than kind of giving kids opportunities to explore who they were and what was out there in the world, it just felt like school was more trying to put you in a bucket and trying to give you a prescribed path. And if you don't really relate or resonate with that path, then um, too bad. And so we, as a response to that, um, 
we didn't set out to create an educational curriculum or a PBS series or anything like that. We essentially set out to build a road trip project. Um, so in a sense, I guess we did the first road trip nation project. Uh, and we, the, our idea was to get out there and we thought, what if we could interview people from all walks of life and learn the paths and steps and insights and lessons learned of, of how they figured out what they wanted to do with their lives. Um, and that kind of prompted us into this three months, maybe this four months process of kind of building the road trip. My buddy Brian, his parents had this old beat up motorhome kind of rotting away inside of the house. We convinced them to donate it to our road trip and we fixed it up. Um, we painted it green because the green paint was on sale at Home Depot and we spent three or four months cold calling people across America asking them if we could sit down with them um, when we were in town and learn from their personal stories and learn how they got to where they are today. And, and after that experience we wrote this manifesto um, based on, you know, kind of our, our reflections from that trip uh, boiled down into all of the insights and conversations and lessons we had over a two and a half month period, over 18,000 miles, 84 interviews, and, and, and it just felt like there was a lot of truth in that. And it wasn't really us saying, like, this is our, our, our take on how people should live their lives. It was more like, this is what we had learned on this two and a half month road trip. And, and it's been kind of the, the foundation and the pinnacle of everything that we've, we've built on top of it. You know, we, we don't prescribe it to other students, you know, like we, we simply use it as kind of what was our learning from our, our road trip. Well, it, you know, again, the temptation is to kind of move into education speak, but so much of what you've written here really resonates with kind of the shadow culture of education. It's about engagement rather than conformity. It's about construction rather than passive acceptance. Um, you know, there's a, a, a sort of a brilliantly deep tie here that you just manifested by doing it. I mean, I love the blah, blah, blah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that just cracks me up. You know, it's the noise, block it, shed it. But my sense is, and I'm really curious about this, so you're going to get acceptance from, from people where the students aren't succeeding. You know, I wonder how this message goes over in a very traditional school environment where they sort of feel like, okay, we are succeeding. We're, we're getting our kids mm -hmm. to accomplish these things. In your own life, and, and you have to tell me how comfortable you are with talking about this personally, but uh, how were you feeling at the end of college that prompted this, and um, how does it reflect maybe your own experiences as a student? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I mean, college is, is like, is an incredible experience, and, you know, I, I feel like I left college smarter, helped me how to think, all that good stuff, and and, you know, but at the same time, it felt like, it also felt very prescribed and kind of limiting. Like, I remember, I remember having to choose a major, you know, when I was in ninth, ninth or in freshman year and just the, the process of that and the, the pressure and like, oh my God, like, what I choose now defines you for the rest of my life and I have no idea how to select this major. And, and it, I just remember, um, you know, there's like, you know, 12 or 13 choices for your major, you know, maybe 14 or 15, I don't know, but it just seemed like those, just that act of choosing, you know, it just kind of seemed like those were your choices for the rest of your life. And then, you know, I chose biology, um, you know, I don't, I don't remember particularly why, but just kind of got into it. And, and, uh, and I remember 
one second into biology, they literally said there are kind of like five routes you can go. You can, you know, you can be a biology teacher and you get out of school, like for high school. You can go on to get your PhD and like be a professor and do like the research track. You can go on to some kind of medical, physical, you know, profession. But that it just seemed like it just seemed more like you were filling some need out there in society rather than figuring out kind of who you were and what your natural talents are and, and mixing all that together. And um, so I guess that and, and same thing with you know my buddy Nathan. He was he was really passionate about art and design. We grew up together, and he was always the kid who was. You know, we used to we started like a surfboard company to get. I mean, it wasn't really a company. We just kind of shaped our own surfboard, like in middle school and skimboards, and and he got into like t-shirts design in high school and was always really creative. Did like installations for surf shops designs and whatnot. But when he got to college, I remember he majored in business, and he, you know, it was only because society kind of told him there's nothing you can do with your life in art unless you want to be like a starving artist and live on the boardwalk. I remember his dad like literally told him that, like there's nothing you can do with that. But on the road trip, you know, in actuality when we got outside of the walls of college and we interviewed so many people on that trip that were graphic designers and we interviewed one guy in northern Vermont who, um, this guy named Michael Jagger who started a design firm called JDK Design and works with big companies like Hewlett Packard and and Quicksilver, and he basically he was Burton was their first client, and they were Burton Snowboards' first um, first advertising agency that helped them do kind of all the early brand work for Burton Snowboards and the snowboarding movement. And and you know he was you know when he spoke, his childhood and his passions seemed so similar to what Nathan was passionate about. And it was like, oh my God, here's this entire world that relates to who I am, that's artistic, design oriented, but doesn't involve living under a boardwalk. And it just it just kind of opened up the whole world to us. I think that's probably the best way we can explain the impact. Was it just, you know, and the thing is that if we're if you're in, if you're a college student, you're all you're already privileged to have access and exposure to so many more career pathways. I mean, now in a lot of the school districts where we're working, like, you know, our team was out in East San Bernardino County yesterday afternoon, speaking with a cohort of three. 300 youth that are going through the Roche Nation Experience curriculum, and many of those kids had never been out of there, of that corner of East San Bernardino County, and you know, and, and they were they were. I was just kind of walking around our office asking, you know, some of our crew here, like, what does the future of education mean to you? And and almost all of our our crew said something along the lines of, you know, empowering students to explore beyond what their traditional set point is, where they're at, their corner of San Bernardino County, whatever, because they don't think they can leave. They don't they don't it's not even really about geography, it's more about exposure to pathways for their future. And um, if we felt and I think that was really our epiphany and our what galvanized us to get involved in education was, you know, if we were feeling this way in college, how do kids feel in East San Bernardino County or in East Fresno County? County or South San Diego or West Oakland, all these places where we're working now, and I think that's what we become. I'm kind of rambling on, but that's what we become really passionate about: is taking this experience and impact that we had on our first trip, but really trying to spread that to kids who need it the most and who have the least opportunity for exploring what's possible for their futures. Well, you're on the show, Mike, because you know uh, my personal belief is that we're going through cultural changes that are going to lead us to seeing this is not only the sort of appropriate model for most students, but compellingly, in many ways, um, a, a really important model 
in a world in which sort of increasingly uh, in the long tail you need to find things that you care and are passionate about. Um, and yet we have a, a sort of a cohort of educators for whom conformity was their pathway into their career. And it can be very hard to, to kind of help educators feel the same sense of passion in their own lives to communicate that to students. The, the teachers that you're working with, uh, who, who are working with the kids who are in these sort of less, uh, you know, more, more difficult circumstances, what's their reaction to the program? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's been one of the coolest parts is seeing teachers really engage with it. Um, and, you know, particularly students, like one of the areas that we work in is mostly like a lot of continuation schools here in, in California. Um, you know, schools for second chance kids who have already dropped out. And a lot of the teachers that are teaching there are in it because they, they love it. They want to help kids. They're not working in it. That's a really tough setting. Um, and you know they're looking for ways to better engage their kids and help show them opportunities for their future. And I think one of the keys is in how we designed the curriculum. We made it very flexible and modular, um, so that a teacher can easily implement it in their in their schools. Uh, there's just a question online: What is a continuation school? A continuation school is basically a second chance school. Um, a school, you know, whether there's a student who dropped out for drug purposes or behavioral problems, um, who have been bounced around school to school, or who have been put in juvenile hall, who have been adjudicated. A continuation school is a school that's kind of like, almost like a halfway house where they can come back and kind of get um, back on track. And so usually those schools are filled with a lot of really troubled kids, but also really passionate teachers who are only there because they really want to help those kids who are the most disengaged. And that's where we found um, a lot of residents of Roadtrip Nation, also with uh, local county workforce investment boards. It's kind of outside of school, but there are lots of um, youth-serving organizations uh, that target students who have already dropped out of school, who maybe might be a single mom with a kid, they're 19 years old, and they're trying to figure out what, what types of pathways exist. Um, we've got a lot, of, a lot of residents in those programs. So I want to talk about a couple of things tonight, and I want to make sure I'm covering everything. I'd like to talk quickly about the bus trips in the TV show, and then I want to talk about um, the interviews that take place as a part of that, and then sort of the education or curricular piece. And so we've got RoadTripNation.com and RoadTripNation.org. If we cover those, will we be covering the main story? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so if it's okay with you, um, I want to show the video from YouTube that kind of talks about what the, the bus trips are. And after you finished your tour, kind of where did the story go? Um, how did you how did you get to the place where you actually have the have the bus for the the students to do this? Um. You want me to talk about that right now? Well, yeah, or do that, and then I'll show the video. Okay. Um, so we got so on on the road trip, we we got a little bit lucky. So we we met someone in New York City. One one of the people that we interviewed knew a writer for Forbes magazine, and Forbes ended up doing this like small article on Road Trip Nation. It was it was like you know literally three inches high, but it got the attention of an editor at Random House, the big New York book publisher, who looked for who looked through. Um, magazines for ideas for books to do. So she came across our article and said, oh my gosh, this road trip you guys just did, 
you know, this could be a really cool idea for a book. So we ended up doing year and a half after that road trip and really kind of processing what we learned. The book came out um, in about a year and a half, almost two years later, uh, and it didn't sell very well at first. It was, I don't know, 650,000th best-selling book in America or something like that, but then the publisher really got behind it with publicity and, and we were on like all that stuff, like Today Show, CNN, Carson Daly Show. It was, it was crazy. And it became the 15th best-selling book in America at one point on Amazon just for like a day, but it, you know, it was like an important, a big day, you know, parents were proud. And around that time, the publisher had us going on this public speaking tour um, all across to schools all across America. And that's when we had, that was, that's when we had our epiphany for Road Trip Nation, which was that, um, you know, even though the book was selling well, it wasn't really enough for other students. A lot of other students were feeling the same way that we were feeling in school, like underexposed and just trying to figure out what was out there and what was possible for their future. And, and that's when we started to think, wow, you know, these students are definitely inspired by our road trip, but they don't really want to live vicariously through our road trip. They want to have their own exploratory opportunities. And that's when we started to think, what if Road Trip Nation could be bigger than just like our first road trip. You know, what if it could be this grassroots movement that gives lots of other students the opportunity to build their own road trip experiences and explore what's possible for their futures and have similar opportunities that we had on our with our first trip. Um, so around that time we we essentially um, it, it was an interesting period. I mean I don't know how, how deep you want to get into it, but we when the book took off uh, that we had a couple different offers to do like a second book deal and they want us to do like a TV show with MTV and like all this all this junk and uh, they, they wanted to be focused on us like going on another road trip interviewing people and we said you know what like thanks, thanks for the offer but we really feel that Road Trip Nation should be based about other students experiences and give other students those opportunities so they said if you want to do a show or you want to do a book let's mobilize lots of students to build their own road trip projects and then give them chances to share it through a book, but they, they were not into that at all. So long story short, um, after the book came out, we kind of unplugged from the media world for a while and started our own grassroots organization called Road Trip Nation, uh, which is roadtripnation.com, and started partnering with college campuses across the country with career centers to run programs where students could apply for the chance to build their own, uh, their own summer road trips. Um, we were then always fans of public television, like we loved Charlie Rose and we're kind of geeks like that. And public television we felt also get, was like one of the few authentic outlets out there that would show, share socially relevant content. Um, so we partnered with PBS to then start broadcasting some of the videos from those student road trips. Uh, and over the course of five years we scaled that program to 350 college campuses. Um, the PBS series is aired in 80 million households every year. We've done nine seasons on PBS. Um, and I'll let you kind of go into the video, but that, that was essentially the birth of RoadTripNation.com was these college programs and the television series focused on empowering other students to build their own road trip projects. Uh, and, then, and then we went into what we call this kind of the second chapter of Road Trip Nation, okay. which was and really finding ways really to bring Road Trip Nation to students who need the most least opportunities for exploration. And that's what started with RoadTripNation.org. We're not going to go down the, the, the sort of the normal financial road, but we really believe in something strong enough that we're going to do it differently. Is that fair? 
Yeah, yeah, we were we were really galvanized in, with it, and and it was definitely a, a kind of a it was a tough period, you know, for several years we were living out of garages and building it and doing that. But I think we, you know, now you know seven years later, I, we feel very confident that we took the right road and and we kind of preserved the authenticity and the purity of Road Trip Nation. I think that really counts now, and where you mean this isn't a standard PR photo of you? It's real. It's not. You know, it's not another prepackaged curriculum thing. I think students really see that as a movement that they can participate in. Okay, I'm going to put the video on, then we'll come back and ask some more questions. Uh, no, um, that, that is the for any reason um, you have trouble with YouTube, um, just put a note in the chat now. I'm also going to leave the link there. But this is going to start right up, and we'll come back when the. Um, Hey everyone, my name is Hannah and I am a past road tripper here at Road Trip Nation. And I just wanted to take a minute to invite you guys to hit the road with us this summer on the Green RV. Everywhere you turn, people try to tell you who to be and what to do. But what about deciding for yourself? Road Trip Nation is a documentary series that airs on public television and each summer we select teams of three, one, two, three, to hit the road with us. That team will travel across the country on one of these guys for a six-week adventure that will change their lives. They'll be meeting with individuals, at least 30, and talking to them about their passions and how they got to where they are in their lives. I lived in a basement apartment and I ate, you know, <laughs> in rotation, you know, tomato soup and uh, SpaghettiOs and tuna fish every day for a year, and I was so happy. I put it in my application, front and center. I'm a little person. My essay was, I'm three foot two, maybe I'm crazy for doing this, but this is my dream and I think it's possible. This experience isn't just about exploring careers. This is about having meaningful life conversations, finding out how individuals constructed purposeful lives doing what they love. To take a risk is a really big issue. Your family expects so much of you, society expects so much of you. It feels like you're stepping off of a cliff and it doesn't make any sense and it's irrational. But that's when you're most alive. It's also about getting out of your comfort zone and into the real world. As a road tripper, you're involved in every aspect of road trip. I mean, every aspect. You'll be booking the interviews, you'll be living, eating, sleeping on the RV, opening up and sharing your personal stories and thoughts in front of the cameras. That's Jason, he's pretty much awesome. So who should apply? Basically anyone who is searching for something in life, who's looking to travel, to meet new people, and have meaningful conversations. I don't know which, which way to go, you know, I love art, I love performance and biology and medicine. That's really what I hope to get out of people, asking them questions about that critical time in their life like we're at right now. Find out what really drives you, you know, find your passion, you know, because that's what you're going to do best at, because it's what you're going to kick the covers off on the next morning, you know, out of, out of desire. Road trip is like the biggest opportunity to really find out what I'm made of. I need to discover myself. Road trippers come from all different walks of life with all different reasons for why they want to be on a road trip. You don't have to be like me or anyone else. You just have to be like you. Apply to hit the road on this summer's Green RV Road Trip. Road trippers must be between the ages of 17 and 35. You can apply as an individual or as a team of three along with two of your friends. Applications must be submitted by December 15th, so get to it. We look forward to learning about your road. So I'm hoping that finished for everybody. 
Uh, if it didn't, I put the link in the chat. Uh, Mike, there are questions in the chat here that are probably very similar to mine. Will you take a 50-year-old on this trip? <laughs> uh, we're considering expanding the age limit, but yeah, no. So I'm I watched a couple maybe, of the episodes, <laughs> and uh, the one thing really stood out for me, which is that almost everybody that was interviewed were people who had been in, in unique kind of passion-driven circumstances. I didn't see any of the kids going in to interview the product manager at Hewlett-Packard. Is that just kind of a part of the larger picture? And who actually decides who's going to get interviewed? Um, yeah, so the, the students absolutely decide who they're interviewing on their trips. Um, and that's a really important piece of it. The students are interviewing people in fields that they're, that they're passionate about. Um, and you, you, know, you do see you know, the interview archive now is 900 interviews, which is just insane. Um, but yeah, a lot of those interviews are, are across the board. I mean, you know, you could be watching an interview with a lobsterman on the coast of Maine, um, Maine the lobsterman, or you know, a truck stop owner on the Texas-Louisiana state line, or a bartender in Louisiana, or you could be watching an interview with, you know, Michael Dell from Dell Computers or Howard Schultz from Starbucks. I mean, it's literally, it's from across the spectrum, um, and I think because it's always been student-driven. Like literally and figuratively, that's why the, the interview list has been so so eclectic, and I think that pays off now with the curriculum because you can tell that students can you know are the ones that booked it. It's not like we have some PR team booking interviews to go for another you know interview thing for CNBC or something. You know, it's it's completely student driven, and and um, and I think the the interview content that really comes through because. You know, it's not like they're, you know, oh, this is what my day in the life is like, or this is my workplace. I mean, it's really about their, their life stories um, and, and the struggles and the lessons. And, and something happens when you put a student in the room with someone who's kind of retrospectively looking back on their life. Like maybe for the first few minutes, it's kind of like in PR mode, like, oh, the video cameras, whatever. But then there's a certain point where the adult who's being interviewed kind of clicks into another gear and, and kind of goes back into the shoes of where they were at when they were 18, 19, 20 years old before they had it figured out. And it's a really powerful moment because, you know, they're kind of taken back to that place in their life before they knew what they wanted to do and that, that groveling period. And I think, especially in American culture today, we, or Western culture, you know, we, we don't really celebrate the, the groveling periods of people's lives. You know, you just kind of see where they ended up, whether they're, you know, a, a professor at a college now or a lawyer or a CEO, you know, and I think it's really important you know that 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 we share those periods with with this generation in terms of like you know it, it is tough and people do struggle to figure it out and hear the lessons and themes of how they kind of figured out who they were and what they wanted to do. So there's some fun chat going on. It, it, uh, I'm either going to have to paint my desk green or we're going to have to change the colors of the Future of Education website to match the green because we're sort of <laughs> doing virtually what you what you're encouraging. And it's interesting if I think about it. Uh, when I first graduated from college and started taking my first jobs, I actually did this. Every week I took someone to lunch and asked them about their life and their work. And that, I mean, you know, I hadn't thought about that in years, but it probably has led me to the same place of finding the interview platform as a really healthy way for me to learn. Mm. Yeah, that, that, I mean, there is so much there. and. And I think, you know, it's it's funny because it feels like it's not something new either. I mean, it's something 
very old and ancient, and you know, lots of other civilizations like you know Native Americans or you know, it's about kind of sitting around the campfire and connecting kind of the next generation with the elders and learning from those insights and lessons and themes. And for some reason, like, it just feels like our generation stopped doing that. And you can feel it on both sides of the fence. Like, students don't have a lot of opportunity. I mean, the number of students that we interact with now through the curriculum, you know, and students who tell us that they've never interacted with an adult outside of their immediate family or teachers is, is unbelievable. And at the same time, when, when students call up the adults, like, many times they're they are so excited to share their stories and that it's almost like a cathartic experience of reliving in their insights and, and you can tell that while students don't have a lot of opportunity to meet with adults, adults also don't have a lot of opportunities to share their, their stories. And you know, we always ask ourselves like why is it the road trip nation is just really stuck? You know, I mean it's not like we came out of business school or M MBA school or had some postdoctoral thing and we you know created this whole deal. I mean it really happened organically and it must be because there's something missing in our culture that we kind of skipped over and I think um, it's not new, you know, it, it's just kind of unearthing something that's always been there but that you know, our, for some reason our generation has kind of missed. So I have a 13 year old daughter and aside from the fact that she's 13 and there are all kinds of sort of interesting social things that go on at that age, we sat down together and watched one episode and so I did the kind of the dad thing. So, Caroline, you know, who would you want to talk to? And who would you want to interview? And she was really shy and, you know, almost couldn't go there. Very difficult. Mm -hmm. uh, do you encounter that enough that you have a way of kind of dealing with it? Absolutely. I mean, that's, that's what inspired us to create the curriculum um, was, you know, and it, like, and especially in some of these communities, like, for example, in East Fresno County, like when, when our book first came out, um, you know, there was this little, in Fresno, for some reason, they had us back to speak to their kids in their schools over and over and over again. And um, we got to know some of the kids there, and they were just so hungry to see something that represented the world outside of Fresno. And, and they were also, like you say, like very shy and very, very kind of, they just they had never experienced anything like that before. And when we did our first educational pilot, we went back to Fresno intentionally to work with some of those same groups that brought us up there to speak. And and that was one of the first things that we found right away was, you know, when we when it came to building the road trip curriculum, asking kids to go build their own road trip projects, even if it was local across Fresno County, that is way outside of their comfort zone. And getting them just to even cold call, I mean, that was a huge step in the curriculum. Um, so we had to be really intentional about, you know, slowly easing up to that process, starting with a lot of the digital content from the past road trips, using a lot of the college student alumni to kind of give their feedback and advice on how they did it, and then finally just trying to be really, I don't know, just take a different approach to some of the activities and lessons, like, like there's one activity in the curriculum before they do the cold call, every student has to call the operator and ask them how to cook a baked potato, and that just kind of warms them up to getting, you know, just kind of reaching out there and cold calling and just little stuff like that. But it, but it then evolves into them actually doing cold calls and finding people to interview and finding the local fireman down the street, the local doctor, local, local pediatrician and, and setting up that interview. And, you know, in many ways the cold call is almost, I don't know if it's just as impactful as the interview, but it is just about there because it is kind of that first moment where they're breaking down that wall, that some kind of belief thing in there. Even a lot of students always try to interview Oprah, and no one ever books an interview with Oprah, but man, when they are 
coordinating with Oprah's PR team, they are on top of the world. They're like, there's something about that they just had opportunity, even if they got rejected from Oprah, they are leaving voicemails for the PR team. I mean, they, all of a sudden their world has expanded tenfold and you can see them starting to just think a little bit broader about their future. So I watched the first episode, I think, of this season and a girl in Korea booked an interview and it was like a party. You could just tell she was so excited that, you know, that it happened. She actually, you know, got an interview. So, um, yeah. some sort of practical questions, and I am keeping track of the questions in the chat, and I will, um, we're going to get to the Q&A quite quickly here. Uh, how many buses are there? Uh, good question. I mean, there's our original RV, which is the one in the photo on the screen. That's, that does not operate anymore. That, I mean, that broke down in every state across the country on our first trip. Um, it's held together by duct tape and liquid steel underneath. I mean, it is, it is not operable. Um, and then there's an additional three RVs, which are not new RVs by any means. They're about probably 12-year-old RVs. Um, but they're, they're more operable and they kind of get across country better. Uh, we also have one in Australia, too. <clears throat> for an Australian trip we did a few years back. And so uh, what about insurance? Um, yes. <laughs> As Roach expanded, we definitely had to be more careful on the liability side and insurance side, so we are fully covered on all of that stuff. So. Oh, I figured you were fully covered, but I wondered how expensive it was to, to insure three teenagers or young adults driving a big RV around. It's expensive. Yeah, I don't, I don't know the exact numbers, but it's, 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 a, it's an animal. Yeah. That is so funny. Okay, so here's some questions from the chat. Uh, Marlene wanted to know, what kind of funding did you have for your trip? Yeah, yeah, I mean, that, that's a big misconception. A lot of people think that we had some big backer or like our parents paid for the road trip or, but that is, I mean, we, it was, and we usually don't, we definitely do not um, recommend this as advice to kids, but it was all credit cards and gas cards. I mean, and it was, it was a nightmare. I mean, we, I'm still glad that we did it. I mean we took that chance, but there was probably a more fiscally responsible way to, to do it. So, And this is probably on top of existing college debt. Yeah, I mean, we had to defer school loans. It was a mess. I mean, it was just a total financial train wreck. Um, but, but I remember thinking, like, you know, I remember thinking when we got back from the, when, like, the year we got back, I remember thinking, like, even if nothing happened from this and I wasn't able to, it was still, still worth it. You know, if nothing ever happened, nothing ever came from it, we would have, I would have done it again. In a lot of countries, there is a gap year. It's, uh, you know, there's a, there's a cultural tradition of students taking off, time off before going to college. Um, do you see a connection between that and what you're doing? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it is a natural kind of like rite of passage, you know, element, I think, of every feeling that a kid goes from youth to adulthood and you know I think that the gap year taps into it really well for some reason in American culture there's so much pressure and there's so much ambition and so much kind of get on the track as fast as you can that that has been squeezed out of our culture and and I mean in its biggest possible sense that's what we hope Road Trip Nation one day represents is that it's kind of America's version of the gap year and it can be also be extended to other countries but um, you know it is just it's in such a huge need here, and and we hope to we hope to kind of bridge some of that emotional gap here. 
Okay, uh, Peggy wants to know, do you ever find people that uh, they wanted to interview or, or they interview who don't want to be videotaped? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we, yeah, that happens, that does happen. Um, and that's totally fine. I mean, I think the most important thing for us is the experience for the students. And um, but most of the time they're excited to share their story. I mean, it's not, um, you know, I don't know, it's funny, like, most people are so kind of hesitant about being filmed and where this is going and all that, but at the end of the day, like, it's, it's really just kind of people's stories and how they got to where they are, so we, we don't really encounter that too much, but if we do, it's not a big deal. Mary wanted to know, have you been able to measure the impact of the program on students? Yeah, so, I mean, ever since that we have kind of taken this turn into education, um, you know, certainly there's been a whole, what we've tried to do is kind of preserve the core of Road Trip Nation, the authenticity, the movement, the ethos, the spirit of it, while also finding a way to make it, um, you know, usable and, and useful for teachers. You know, we never wanted to build this thing that was kind of like an island where it was this great, beautiful thing and people loved it, but you couldn't really, it wasn't usable. And so, the, over the last couple of years, a lot of our journey with Road Trip Nation has been, how do we preserve Road Trip Nation while also creating this connective tissue around it that is really a tool for teachers to help engage their students and their futures. And without getting too into the you know, education jargony side of it, um, one of our first funders was the Hewlett Foundation and the AT&T Foundation. And they helped us to scale our program from the pilot in Fresno with 2,000 students to 35,000 students in California, Texas, and New York um, over the last two years. And in addition to that, they brought aboard a third-party evaluation firm, which was really key for us because we we are not, you know, that's not our background. Um, you know, we were really passionate about giving kids an opportunity to explore their futures, but in terms of like figuring out what is the impact on those students prior, um, you know, that wasn't really our specialty. So a third-party evaluation firm called Spec Associates was funded by the Hewlett Foundation helped us to really do a deeper dive into figuring out what is the impact on these kids. Um, they helped us create a logic model connecting, you know, the reasons why students disengage with school to some of the key elements of our curriculum and kind of backwards mapping to ways that Road Nation could help. Um, if you go to roadtrimation.org forward slash impact, put the impact after the org. There's a whole um, there's a whole evaluation page that we just launched that shows the 18-page white paper that Spec Associates released on the impact, but also some um, some of the student videos and youth feedback videos in terms of what are the what are the ways that they uh, kind of impacted them. Um, and just on some baseline things, we measured things like um, student student-teacher connectedness we saw increase. The students and teachers had more of a personal relationship after going through the program. Student-community connectedness, um, greater engagement with school. So not only did they have more exposure for their future, but they were also feeling that the things they were learning in school were relevant and more connected to the real world. Um, they mapped it back to some to 21st century skill development. And then some things we measured that might be a little bit out of the box, but we thought were really important were things like hope. Um, 84% of the students went through the program had more hope for their futures after going through Road Trip Nation. And we thought, thought this was really key because if a kid doesn't have hope for their future, why would they stay engaged in school in the first place? And we were also found some other studies that were done by the Gallup poll where it said something like only 50% of kids in American schools have hope for their future or something crazy like that. And we just felt that that was one area that we wanted to try to 
have an influence on was giving students, you know, first of all, giving students a vehicle to explore what's possible for their futures and then hopefully seeing some of the byproducts that come from that. Yeah, it would seem to me really easy to kind of begin to see ties between hope and meaning and significance um, in, as the students are participating in sort of meaningful ways. Um, and that would seem to me to be a sort of a brilliant outcome. Um, Peggy also wanted to know, do students, uh, do you ever get students who are running away from personal problems and not especially stable? Absolutely. I mean, we have so many of those stories, especially in the continuation school setting. Um, I mean, it's like, you know, there was one student of a story who, or, like, or a kid who was, you know, living behind the school and like literally in the bushes um, before coming back to school and going to the program. Lots of students. If you click on the um, the video on this on this page, um, in evaluation impact video. Maybe maybe this is a better way to answer this question is just to click on the video and watch the first thirty seconds of a teacher who's using road trip nation. And this will this will I think show it from the teacher's perspective of that. Okay, we'll take a pause. Everybody, go ahead and click on the play on that video, and we'll come back after thirty seconds. Was, that was really hard to turn off. <laughs> I couldn't go just for 30 seconds. I had to let it go a little bit longer. Okay, so Elizabeth wants to know, if I want to use this program in my classroom, how can I get started? All right, so now the website you have up in front of you right there, roadtripnation.org, this is our new website that we just launched, which is basically a tool for teachers and districts and counselors and anyone who wants to implement this with their kids. Um, in order to sign up to use it, you have to email our director of school partnerships. We're being really careful with our with our scale right now, so we can really keep the fidelity at, at high quality. Um, but we're we're working on a new cohort cohort of students that will start the program in January um, or the following fall, September 2012 is fine too. Um, but Jimmy Spatharos is our um, our director of, of school partnerships. So if you click on programs right there on the top blue bar. you'll see uh, Jimmy's contact information. But his email is just there on the right. It's jimmy at roadtripnation.org. So if you're interested in more information, getting a package of stuff, um, figuring out how to implement this in your district or classroom or wherever you're at, it's even been used as a freshman experience class um, in higher education. So Jimmy can help you with all those details. So another question from Peggy, uh, could it be an online experience using Skype or is the physical travel essential to the experience? Yes, that's a great question. Um, it's almost like you're in our brainstorm today, but um, you're right. So one of the things we we're playing with right now is what are new digital um, tools that we can utilize to kind of help students expand their boundaries. I mean, one of the brainstorms we were having earlier is, you know, the Tom Friedman book, the, the World is Flat or something like that. Well, the world is not flat for a lot of these kids in these schools where we're working. I mean, kids out in San Bernardino, you know, they, they are not connected to the rest of the world. And, you know, how, you know, Roche Nation helps get them started exploring right in their communities. But once we get that bug in them, once they start the cold calling, like, you don't want to limit it just right to their own backyard. So is there a way that we can use Skype and video conferencing to kind of build that into the curriculum? Um, and help connect students with people anywhere that they want to interview. So that that is certainly 
in the next generation of road trip nation um, con or, uh, curriculum development. So, so I would love to help you with that. If if any of my expertise is of value to you, feel free to call on me. Awesome. Okay, so we still have some time for some more questions. If you have a question for Mike, feel free to raise your hand and I can give you the microphone. You can ask it by Mike or well, there we go, Marlene's got a question. Marlene, I'm giving you the microphone. You're also welcome to continue to put questions in the chat. Marlene, to turn your mic on, you click on the talk button. Top left of your screen. I'm not hearing anything from you, Marlene, so feel free to put it in the chat or ask for some help if you need some help. So you're looking for the talk button at the top left in the audio video area. Looks like you clicked the away button. Hope everything's okay. Um, anybody else have any questions? So tell us a little bit about the curriculum. So we, you can see a couple of we see a couple of books there on this particular screen, the Road Trip Nation Experience. Can you give us Hello? a little bit of an overview? Oh, Hello? hey, is that you? Yes, Go ahead, Marlene. I don't want to be too loud. Um, my question was about in terms of selecting students, and maybe I missed it because I missed a few minutes in the beginning, but how do you choose the students and who chooses the students? Is it the staff of Road Trip Nation? And what are you looking for when you look at the application? Thanks. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so there are two kind of programs that we implement. One is a college program and then one is a high school slash middle school program. For the college program, this is where students are actually, like in the video that you saw, where students are actually applying to hit the road across America in a green RV or anywhere internationally as well. Um, we've had trips go to Uganda, Israel, Argentina, Australia, New Zealand. Um, students can apply from anywhere. and and essentially, uh, there's three rounds about of the application. Um, the first is kind of a general introduction, and the applications are actually open right now. So if you have any people that you know that are interested in applying, just go to roadtripnation.com, and there's all the application info there. Uh, but we have we have a team in here who kind of sifts through all the applications and kind of you know whittles it down to the final round. Then we come do team interviews with them. And what we're what we're looking for is students who really have have a sincere passion to explore what's possible for their future and who maybe have not had a lot of opportunities to get out um, of their immediate comfort zones and um, and to just kind of resonate with the Road Trip Nation movement. So that's that's the college program side of it. On the high school and middle school side, that's the great thing about the curriculum is that any student can do it where the program is implemented in their school. So one of the problems with the college um, model is that we're really only able to put three students on the road every summer. We do offer some other grants to uh, you know ten other additional teams to do their own independent road trips in their own vehicles. Um, but the model is pretty pretty limited in terms of scale. That's why we started the Road Trip Nation curriculum embedded in schools because in our first year, in our pilot, we had 2,000 students go through the curriculum. So that showed us the potential for real scalability. And then in the following subsequent years, we reached 35,000 students. So that's really the piece of it. The, the big summer trip in the Green RV is still like the iconic piece of it. Um, that is kind of the, the thing that everyone looks towards. But the curriculum on the ground is what we're really focusing on, kind of spreading wider um, to drive larger participation. Okay, so uh, thank you for that question, Marlene. Elizabeth wants to know, can you give an example of a typical lesson from the curriculum? 
Yeah, sure. Um, the curriculum is broken down into three parts. Uh, part one is called exposure. Part two is called self-construction. And part three is their road trip project. Part three is the project-based learning component. We're actually going out in their communities and interviewing people who have done things that the students are passionate about and learning from their stories. But parts one and two, kind of knowing that that part three of the road trip project is usually way outside most students' comfort zones, to your point, to about your daughter. Parts one and two kind of slowly immerse um, the student through virtual exploration of the Road Trip Nation interview archive. Um, so what we did in part one is we broke down our 900 interview archive and started to, to ascertain what are the common lessons and themes of how well these adults got to where they are today. We broke those down into what we call the seven core axles or lessons of Road Trip Nation and then built kind of topical video content around that. So lessons like you know, learning from failure, taking, cal taking, taking calculated risks, defining success, um, making it work, you know, and a lot of these are, are just kind of the basic truths of how all these leaders got, got to where they are today. But part one is essentially exploring how other adults got to where they are today. So it's not as personal, so if a student's kind of defensive, we're not like going too invasive on them, like what are you passionate about? Um, part two though, after we've kind of gained some credibility in part one, in part two called self, this is called self-instruction, this is where we turn the telescope around and start to go a little bit more introspective with the students. We start to identify what are their interests, what are the things that really relate to their own inner values and passions. Um, also lessons like shed the noise which helps students to kind of block some of that pressure they feel from community or pressure of their family around them. Um, and then also they explain their interests. I already talked about that, but that's a really key part too to also then kind of prepare them for part three, which is the part where it's a little more technical and practical, which is building their road trip project. And that's broken up by lessons such as you know finding people to interview in your community, the cold call, that's a big lesson, asking questions in the interview, um, building your road trip project. They, every student kind of uploads their own digital road trip pro, uh, por portfolio from their experiences. And then finally, uh, reflecting and sharing their experiences. This is so awesome. I mean, I got to tell you, Mike, I just am so impressed. <laughs> Thanks. Okay, we probably have time for one final question. Uh, we do end these shows on time as a courtesy to our guests, so if anybody's got one final question, uh, please feel free to raise your hand. Uh, it's the third icon over, and we'll give you the mic. We'll go ahead and put it in the chat. Okay, so I get to ask the final question, I think. Uh, so if you could do one thing to change our education system, what would it be? That's a great question. Um, I would, can, I, can I say two things? <laughs> you can say as many as you want. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I think the first one would be to make it more interest-based. Um, I think that our education system has this notion that's still stuck in kind of like the Myers-Briggs approach, which is, you know, put in these coordinates, blah, 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 and here are the four things you can do with your future. And I think in a lot of ways, it's a little bit demotivating for kids. Um, and But to flip that around and focus on who are, who are you as an individual? Um, what are your interests? What are your passions? And then build from that. I think that would promote such a deeper sense of engagement from students because rather than taking the kid, especially for this generation, instead of, instead of telling them what they're going to do with their life, to start with asking them a question, which is what are you interested in, and going from that, um, I think that would make all the difference. And then the second thing I would say is, you know, how do we empower, we spend a lot of time thinking about this, how do we empower students?
students to to kind of take education outside of the walls of the classroom and and connect their education to the real world. And you know, when I was speaking with one of our Road Trip Nation crew before this about what does the future of education mean to, to us at Road Trip Nation, that's really what it was about was how do you give students an opportunity to to expand beyond their their own set points and their own comfort zones. One of the events again that we had in San Bernardino yesterday, um, you know, one of our crew, Mariana, was was speaking with one of the students and, and said the student said, you know what, this is my life, this is where I live. Like, you know, how how can I get outside of these comfort zones? Well, Mariana, you know, grew up in Australia and in, in kind of a similar background. She really struggled to figure out what was outside of her comfort zone. And you know she really made a big impact on that student, um, kind of inspiring them to think bigger than their set point of where they grew up. So if education can be a tool that helps students to think think bigger about their future and think broader about what's possible for their lives, um, again, I think you'll see so much more engagement and you know even beyond school engagement, just more kids maximizing their full potential and becoming really kind of manifesting. Um, you know what they're what they're passionate about and what talents and qualities they can give to the world. One of the interviews in Road Trip Nation that we love to quote is this guy named uh, he's a Zen master Bon Zong, and he said that the one of the greatest gifts you can give to the world is finding what you're passionate about and manifesting that. And we really believe in that. And if we can give kids more of a chance to explore what they're passionate about, but then also connect with the world around them, um, we think that could make a make a pretty big difference. Mike, awesome. Really, so, such a privilege to have you on the show. Thank you so much. I'm clapping for you. You look for the icons at the left. There's an applause one underneath the smiley face. <laughs> that was just delightful. Really appreciate your coming on the show. Um, coming up in, on the Future of Education, a little bit of a break as we do our virtual conferences. And then on November 22nd, Scott Nine comes to talk about democratic education. We've been talking with Mike Mariner from Road Trip Nation. Mike, thanks again. Really appreciate your coming on.